Hello and welcome to this episode of the Elsian Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. Our focus is always on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, Elsian Legal's co-founder Paul Sutton interviews Mark Supperston, managing partner at UK firm Resolve. The firm specialises in corporate restructuring, helping companies in financial distress and, where necessary, taking formal appointments as administrators or liquidators. Paul and Mark imagine a hypothetical situation involving a UK entity within a multinational group which is in financial distress. They discuss, among other things, how an office holder in a formal corporate restructuring process involving the UK entity would look at related party transactions and the actions of legal entity directors leading up to that point. They also consider what implications this has for group structures and what practical steps legal entity directors can take to protect their position and reduce their risk of personal liability. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Great. Well, today I'm delighted to welcome Mark Supperstone to, to this, this podcast. Um, Mark is someone that I've known for a number of years he is uh, an extremely experienced restructuring specialist. So welcome, Mark. Hi, Paul. Nice to see you today. Great to have you, too. So so the, the, the focus of this, this podcast is, is really to give a different perspective on international cross-border group structures, um, in addition to the tax perspective and the transfer pricing perspective and the high-level corporate governance perspective, and is, is to really call on Mark's experience as a restructuring professional to say, okay, um, supposing you had a multinational group and, and let's say it's it's US headquartered and let's say within the group, there are significant operating entities in various com- countries and, and one of them includes a, a UK entity. So in a situation where maybe there are financial concerns or maybe there's there's distress and in a situation where maybe things go in the wrong direction and uh, a, a formal restructuring process needs to be put in place the question is what would that look like what kind of thought processes apply there and and therefore what kind of thought processes do we as professionals and do directors need to consider when designing and monitoring their structures so really that's that's the context here um so Mark, I'd I'd really like to start by by asking you in this hypothetical situation. So you're you're looking at a UK entity within a, a multinational group, and that that UK entity obviously it has its own creditors and liabilities, employees, and 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 so on. And if you were being asked to assist as a restructuring professional, and and maybe with a view to taking a formal appointment, what would your main duties? In an insolvency uh, situation or administration liquidation, what would your main duties be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Paul. And I'll talk about it on the basis of a formal insolvency appointment where we might be appointed administrator, liquidator. Um, and that would be where a company is is insolvent. Um, and just very high level, generally a company is insolvent on one of two bases. And that's either where their liabilities are, are greater than their assets or more commonly, where they're cash flow insolvent. And that means they can't pay their debts as and when they fall due. And when a company becomes insolvent, the responsibility of the directors turns from acting in the best interest of the shareholders to acting in the best interest of the creditors. So the directors of the company, their responsibility is to make sure they're doing the best thing by their creditors. 
if I'm appointed as administrator or liquidator, my job is to make sure I get the best result for the creditors. So I have to maximize the realization for the benefit of the creditors. And I need to communicate with the creditors and keep them updated as to, to what I've realized, what job I'm doing. And as well as that, I need to investigate the conduct of the directors, which is a very key point for directors, to make sure that they have acted professionally, properly, and considered the creditors at the point in time they, they believe they, they're insolvent. So in summary, the key responsibility of an insolvency practitioner in this situation is to maximize the return for creditors with the intention of trying to get some money back for those creditors. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I guess that that's that's the key point out of this whole conversation in the context of group structures, which is that this dynamic or, or this circumstance immediately completely changes the whole control framework of, of the group because it reduces it to that legal entity perspective, the creditors perspective, um, and, and the overall group interests becomes a, a very distant priority in, in, that, in that scenario. Yeah, and and that's I can see that's a, a tough balancing act for directors of uh, of the UK company in the, in your example because they'll have pressure from from other group entities and they'll have their own pressure as directors and and do, doing the right things for for the creditors. So it is a tough balancing act for directors in in those situations where they might might be insolvent. Yeah, yeah, and um, we'll, we'll we'll come on to this, but in in a number of the situations where we've been asked to review arrangements from a transfer pricing or legal implementation of transfer pricing perspective on things like cash pooling arrangements, actually the number one concern that local boards have is not so much the tax or the transfer pricing, it's actually their personal positions and is this a proper thing to do? And it becomes very sensitive because it means that they're in effect considering whether they need to rebel against the instructions from head office and how do they handle that? And, and maybe we can come on to that. So if if, if we're continuing this, this hypothetical scenario where it is a formal um, restructuring process that is being put in place and and, and you have taken office as, as the office holder, so administrator or liquidator, what would your first steps in that capacity be? Yeah, so we would normally, the first thing we do on any insolvency appointment is we freeze the bank account if there's any cash in there to, to protect yeah. that as an asset. Uh, we put insurance in place over all the assets so that they're fully insured. Um, we would communicate our appointment to all the creditors and any other interested parties, including notifying companies' house so there's a, a record of our appointment. Um, but then our, our job would very much turn to realizing the assets. So it depends on the type of business um, that, that we're dealing with. But there might be um, plant and machinery we have to deal with. There might be there might be stock. Um, there might be intercompany balances. There might be a whole range of things, including potentially a, a trade in business that we might be able to sell. So for us, it's it's how can we maximize the realization? So we take control of those assets we protect them the best we can um as i said for example getting insurance over them but making sure no one comes in to try and remove assets or um, any other issues that might occur but our job as i said earlier is very much about maximizing the the assets so our key focus is trying to work out how we can get the greatest return for any assets that the business has Right. And, and, and so that's that process or that exercise of preserving, maximizing the return for creditors, it might include trading the business for an interim period, 
trading with a view to a, a sale if there is something that is 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 saleable or it may not include that yes uh, that, that's correct although it depends on the type of business i guess that that is being asked to be be traded and Insolvency practitioners back 20 years ago, when I started in the, the profession, it was quite common for an insolvency practitioner to be appointed and trade the business. But nowadays, the, there's a lot of risk in doing that. And if this is a loss making business, um, who's going to fund that? Because yeah. the insolvency practitioner is is unlikely to want to fund those losses whilst a purchaser is sought. But in, in reality, yes, it is. It, one option is to trade the business and um, see whether we can find a buyer that wants to purchase the business as a going concern. That's always the best result if if that can be done. Yeah. Um, but often there's obstacles that that make it quite difficult to to trade a business in in administration. Um, and that's why you may have heard the term a prepack administration. Um, yep. And that is effectively where a buyer is found before the company goes into administration. And then the business sale is completed very quickly after administration, which means there is no trading period because the buyer has already been sought in the period leading up to administration. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a common thing that has developed over the past 20 years um, and means that trade and businesses in administration still happen, um, but are much rarer today than they were maybe 20 years ago. Right. And and I, I suppose in a group context, there's the additional complexity of having to make an assessment is there actually an independent business which can, could be independently operated by by uh, by you as the office holder, or is it so integrated with the other group entities that in fact there's there's very little that can be realised other than physical assets, yeah. cash, those those kind of things. Yeah, it's a very good question. I guess it depends where you know uh, what type of business it is and and, yeah. and where it's located and and who's key. So are the, are the key personnel are they located in the UK? Could they take on the business and and run it, or are they largely located overseas? So there'd be quite a lot to consider in those situations. Yeah. Um, the other thing we see with group entities quite a lot is if if one of the entities goes into an insolvency process. Could it potentially bring down the rest of the um, rest of the group? For example, if a UK entity went into an insolvency procedure and was owed significant sums from from an overseas entity, the insolvency practitioner would be demanding that money back, um, and it may be the the overseas entity couldn't couldn't afford to pay that and might therefore need an insolvency process themselves, and Absolutely. that can have a knock on effect across across the group and. We often see that. So planning is always needed, um, whether the group structured to make sure that we can potentially segregate one one entity. It's not going to pull down the rest of the group. Um, yeah. So there's always a bit of planning in those situations. Yeah. OK. So so moving on from that, um, are, are there any specific statutory requirements that apply in, in terms of the investigations that you need to carry out? Yes, um, and this is this is an interesting point for directors. Um, so once we're appointed um, as either administrator or liquidator in a situation, um, we have a statutory duty to investigate the directors. Um, we have to submit a report to the insolvency service within three months of our appointment. And that report covers not only current directors, but anyone that was a director in the three years prior to insolvency. 
Mm-hmm. And the type of things we look for there are, you know, largely has the director done the right thing? Have they tried to look after the, the creditors of the company? Um, or have they paid themselves in priority to other creditors? Or have they distributed money to group entities when maybe they should have been paying their PAYE instead? Um, if we submit a report that ticks a number of boxes that suggest the directors haven't done the right thing, then the insolvency service may, and they don't always, may decide to investigate that further. And that could potentially lead to disqualification proceedings against the directors. Yeah. And I, I guess that the, the point here is is to emphasize the fact that on one of these formal processes starting, it's it crystallizes the this the self-contained nature of that legal entity and so yes in in many cases groups are run on a line of business basis as opposed to a legal entity basis but it just really emphasizes the fact that the legal entity perspective becomes the the main thing that you are investigating and have a statutory duty to report on so it's 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 not an optional very much very much so yeah it is uh, as you said it's the legal entity we look at that particular uk legal entity and we do our report based on the directors of of that entity um and that's where the directors need to be conscious of their responsibilities because although they might be getting pressure from from other group entities as a director of a uk company they have they have certain responsibilities and and that's what we that's what we will look into and it's not a defense for a director to say i was told to do this by by the states they they told me i had to make these payments or i had to do this you know, we look at it very much as did you did you comply with your uh, responsibilities as a director of a UK entity? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely, and and that that aligns with the the company law view of being a director. You know, company law does not distinguish between different types of directors, like non-executive or overseas or or, or whatever. You are either a director or you're not a director. And if you are, have the question is, have you fulfilled fulfilled your duties or not? Yes, yes, agree. Um, so, so in 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 terms of key issues or or um or claims that could be made potentially against directors personally, what 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 do they look like, and and in what circumstances, if any, could personal liability arise? Yeah, generally, if if it's a limited company, the directors are are protected by by the limited liability status of the company, so they shouldn't have personal liability. Yeah. Where they might have um, an issue is if they've given any personal guarantees. Um, and sometimes directors do give personal guarantees when they're taking credit from um, from suppliers. Um, or I guess that there might be potential claims if they've done things such as um, made preference payments to themselves. And a preference payment is where a payment is made to someone in priority to another person. So, for example, if a director had provided a loan to the business and just before insolvency decided I'm going to pay that loan, back Mm -hmm. to myself that would be a preference payment because they've preferred themselves over a supplier or hmrc or a landlord or someone else so that'd be called a preference payment and that could be claimed back from an insolvency practitioner there's also um, something called transactions at undervalue so if there's an asset that the directors sell in the period leading up to administration or liquidation for less than it is worth that could potentially be clawed back now, it depends who that asset was sold to um, as to who an insolvency practitioner pursues. Um, and I guess the final thing really to think about is wrongful trading. And that is where mm-hmm. a director continues to trade the business when it is insolvent. 
So when a business is insolvent, a director has a responsibility to take some action. If they continue to trade the business and in, continue to incur losses and continue to in, uh, rack up creditor claims, then potentially they could be liable for wrongful trading and that could result in some some personal liability on, on their part. Right. So, 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 so we're, we're talking about personal recourse against directors in a certain uh, and and it's it's not automatic recourse because as as you said you know it is a limited liability entity. However, in these circumstances, and we're talking about UK law at the at the moment, um, wrongful trading preferences uh, transactions at an undervalue. And and j- just wanted to be clear in in terms of these situations, um, my understanding is it's it's not necessary for the director to personally benefit from those transactions in order to be subject to that personal recourse or, or have I got that wrong? Yeah, I think on uh, it's more the wrongful trade-in, uh, which yes. is where the directors could could become personally liable. Yeah. With the preference and transaction at undervalue, that is more depending on on who benefited from, from the preference or transaction at undervalue. So yeah. it wouldn't necessarily be a claim against the director unless they were the beneficiary of, of that action. Right. So okay. it's, it's largely the uh, wrongful trading claim I see um, that they could become personally liable for, um, and any personal guarantees would uh, they'd obviously become liable for if they've if they've issued any. Yes, fine. So, so I, I guess that the personal guarantees will be probably less relevant in a large group mm. context, but the wrongful trading considerations definitely can 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 still apply there. Um, so, so in in that context of preferences and transactions under value and and so on. How how would you regard transactions between the UK entity and other members of the group? Yeah, and, and this comes back to that to that balancing exercise where directors need to be very wary that they're complying with their fiduciary duties and acting in the best interest of creditors and the responsibility they have to the the other group entities. And I think they, the directors need to be very wary of, of that responsibility. And if I was appointed insolvency practitioner, one of the things I do is I go through the bank statements to have a look at who was paid in the period leading up to, mm. and up to my appointment. Now, where I guess I could get concerned is if lots of payments have been made to another group entity, but at the same time, big liabilities are accruing to suppliers, HMRC and others. And therefore, that might be an area I do investigate to say, well, why was that? Why was that money being paid to to a group entity and not, not paid to your creditors? Um, and the directors would have to have some quite clear and good explanation f- for that reason. And there, yeah. may be a re- there may be a reason for that. Um, and in the period leading up to administration, it there's nothing to say the directors can't make any payments. They just have to make sure they're making payments that are in the best interest of the creditors. And that might be making critical payments to, to suppliers that keep the, keep the lights turned on. So mm-hmm. it may be, for example, that if a payment wasn't made to the group entity, the staff wouldn't turn up tomorrow because they wouldn't get, wouldn't get paid. And, and maybe the group entity pays, pays the payroll. I'm not sure. I'm just using examples, but yeah, um, so that there may be valid reasons for making payments to, to group entities, which is in the interest of the creditors, which is in the interest of, of survive, uh, making sure the business survives. So there could be reasons. And what directors need to do is just be wary of their responsibilities, wary of their responsibility to the creditors and potentially documenting reasons why they are doing certain things. Mm-hmm. And if they're unsure, take some advice.
Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, so I, th- I think uh, what, what I'm hearing or, or the way that I would look at this is number one in this kind of process, there's obviously a, a, a very close focus on cash payments. So, you know, that's, that's part of what you're talking about, Mark, in terms of you being appointed as office holder, you reviewing transactions and specifically cash payments going out and, and understanding what was the reason, the rationale for those cash payments being made at that time to to that yes. entity? So that that's 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 one thing. And another thing is is the approval of transactions or arrangements between the related parties, the the group entities. So the the entry into a loan agreement or the variation of the terms of a loan agreement or whatever may not necessarily result in a a cash payment at that exact moment, but it may materially affect the position of that that UK entity in this example within uh, the the overall corporate group. So classic examples would be intercompany loans and cash pooling arrangements or changes in the trading arrangements between um, parties. Um, And so uh, having that that regards to the interests of the UK entity and, and did it make sense? Yeah, and I guess it comes down to partly to uh, at the time that that agreement is signed. So if if the UK company is solvent and the future looks rosy, I think it would be very difficult for someone to criticise a director for for signing an agreement at that point in time, as long as it was a fair agreement. Yeah. If a company is is sort of on the brink of insolvency and a director signs something that may not be in tr- in the interest of its creditors, then that could be looked at. Yeah. Um, so, for example, let let's say a business is is close to insolvency, and this isn't necessarily a group example, but let's say they they take on twenty leased vehicles uh, one month before an insolvency process, and and that's a three year lease. I would look at that and say, well, should you have been signing that that lease at the time because you've mm-hmm. now you've paid one month of the lease and you've got thirty five months left, and and that leasing supply now becomes a creditor. And therefore, you've increased your creditor liabilities by signing that, and you should probably have known better at the time. Yeah. So, it's, I think it's just directors being wary, and if they do sign an agreement when they are solvent, then then they have some protection as long as what they're signing is fair and reasonable, and they have to consider what it might look like if the UK business does experience some financial difficulties. Mm. Is this agreement going to be looked back on and, and considered unreasonable, unfair, and not in the interest of the creditors? So I think directors just need to always consider what it's a horrible thing to do. You don't want to be thinking negative, but what would happen if if the future didn't quite work out as anyone thought and I'm in a situation where the company could be deemed insolvent? Could this agreement be looked back on as as doing the wrong thing? Yes. So yeah. I think it's just going in with open eyes. Absolutely. And what what I find really interesting is, is that from a transfer pricing perspective, that one of the sort of major developments or evolutions in the TP world over the last couple of years um, has been the emphasis on contemporaneous documentation. Um, so explaining the rationale um, as to why changes are made to intercompany transactions and and especially during times of distress or change or whatever to explain uh, the steps that were taken. Um, and from a TP perspective, that is looked at as often at sort of global level, you know, at, at the level of the global tax and transfer pricing function, knowing that they may be asked by the tax authorities in all the relevant countries, you know, why did you do that? Why did you make that that change? 
And so in many ways, that aligns with the legal entity restructuring office holder view of the world, but just applies that to legal entity level, actually with a bit more intensity in, in saying, okay, specifically, how did this affect the, the, mm. the UK entity in this example? And why did that make sense? And and the challenge is, obviously, is in, in this multinational group, you're not just doing this from the perspective of UK and, and the, the parent country, it's all the other entities at the same time, <laughs> which are being managed. And, and so what it means is that in terms of global changes to transfer pricing policies and intercompany transactions, it's it's applying uh, or ha having regard to the individual stakeholders, including the individual directors, and as much as possible, not proposing arrangements that they would not be able to defend as being in the best interest of the yeah. entity. Very much so. And you, you made a very important point there, which is something I, I always um, recommend to clients, and, and that is file noting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if there's a decision um, that you, you, you've you you've made, make a file note of the reason you did it, the reason behind it, and, and hold board meetings if necessary, and in a minute the, the board meetings, um, because for two reasons, really. One is you in years gone, years to come, you might forget why you made that decision. Yeah. And the second thing is it, it becomes much more difficult for a claim against you if you went through a, a, a thorough thought process and at the time believed you were doing the right thing as a director. Yeah. Um, and if you've documented it, that is certainly a, a, a good defense for you. It doesn't mean you get out of everything, but it, it certainly helps and shows that you're acting as a, a good director at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so here we're talking about practical things that directors can do to minimize their risk both personally and and from a corporate perspective and and absolutely i'd say number one is is file noting and recording the transactions number two is, is probably reaching out you know if, if if you if someone does have concerns is is to reach out to a professional someone like you mark and and just have that conversation yeah, I think if I'd say to anyone, if you if you're worried about insolvency or you've got concerns or you think it might might be something that could happen in the future, I'm always happy to speak to people. Um, I'm sure you know other firms in the restructuring field would be happy to do the same. I don't charge for that. I'm I'm always happy to have a an hour's phone call and just talk someone through their concerns and hopefully they walk away at the end of that that phone call feeling a not necessarily happier, but understanding the position a little bit and and feeling that they've got a phone number for someone to call if things don't go as as they hope. Um, so always happy to speak to people. And I think it's you know it's important that where a director has concerns, they do they do take advice and and see whether there's anything they should be doing. Absolutely, and and just going back to the, the the group dynamic, which is you know for the looking at the situation of a local director. Um, they may not want to immediately object to the proposals from head office that but they they will probably value having an independent view on an informal basis to start with and and going back to the, the sort of practical protections or the defenses you know number one is contemporaneous file notes you know why do we do this and what was the reason what was the context that the the sort of step above that is is to get formal advice on, on that because that's all part of the paper tr paper trial isn't it to, to to show that the directors have properly considered the yeah. options the relevant steps and we would see uh, you know we'd have seen companies like that taking legal advice at, at the point in time 
um, and, and documenting that again, getting proper letters from from the lawyers so that they've got something on file. Um, and then that makes our job more difficult to pursue a director where they've gone through a proper thought process. They've got file notes and they've taken proper legal advice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Mark, I'm incredibly grateful. I think it's been really, really helpful, um, including from from my perspective, just to reconfirm the perspective from someone like you at the coalface who is an actual office holder in these kind of restructuring formal processes. So thank you so much for the time you shared with us. No problem. Nice to speak, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Elsian Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, elsianlegal.com. And you'll find more information about some of the issues discussed in this episode there too, in the Training Hub section and on our blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Thank you and goodbye.